Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers stand together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I have been given the subject, Jesus is King, or Jesus as King. I want to begin, or do begin, with an assertion, a declaration. Jesus is King. Jesus is exalted on Zion, God's holy hill. This speaks messianically of the one to come. We know that Jesus came and claimed messiahship. He was crucified, and you'll be remembering all of this over the next few weeks. He was crucified, and you know the creed, don't you? And he was raised from the dead. And then six weeks later he was taken up into heaven. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The fact is, the simple fact is, that Jesus, our lovely gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who was crucified for our sins, now sits in his Father's glory. He is even now, Lord of Lords and King of all the Kings. That's where we begin. We begin there because I notice that in the Gospels, all the Gospelers, in their different ways, begin quite emphatically. Mark begins... The Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Get out of that. And he hasn't started yet. That is his beginning. And Matthew and Luke both include genealogies, which you might think are really boring when you sit down to read them. But when you realise that these genealogies show that 
Jesus, humanly speaking, is a descendant of David to whom was given a kingdom that would know no end, you realize that they're making a very definite, clear statement from the very outset about the Jesus they're writing about. Jesus is king. The history of kingship in Israel I'm not going to go into because you will be bored, as I nearly got bored during the week, researching it. But God is the king of his people, Israel. Moses was God's servant, but he ruled, he led almost as a regent on God's behalf. God was king. God is sovereign. There came a time in Israel's history when they wanted to be like the other nations around them. And they asked Samuel, who was the current prophet and judge of Israel at the time, they asked him for a king so they could be like the other nations. And Samuel got quite angry with them because he said, you're rejecting God as your king. And the people chose Saul to be their first king. They chose Saul because they were under severe pressure from a people group called Philistines at the time, raiding, um, invading, stealing. They were a tough bunch with the Philistines. And Saul was a warrior king. And when Saul failed as king, and God told Samuel to anoint another one, a man after his own heart, he anointed David. But David again was acclaimed by the people because he had already demonstrated in Saul's army that he was a warrior par excellence. He was a great leader against their enemies around and about, and a great king, they were sure. Now David was a man after the Lord's heart, though we know he made many serious mistakes, like Peter did later. These two guys encourage me, because I want to be a man of God, but I have made some serious mistakes sometimes. But I see that God stood by David and forgave him, and God stood by Peter all that time afterwards and forgave him. What a wonderful, gracious God we have. David was a king, a man after God's own heart. But the day came when David, having conquered nations round about, took Jerusalem. And then he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which he did with great celebrations, though not everybody celebrated if you read the story. And then he wanted to build a temple, a house for God a house into which they could put the ark. And God sent his prophet Nathan to David. And the prophet Nathan, now I'm going to find this, this is um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God sent Nathan to David because David at first said, yeah, you want to build a house, do it. Do whatever's in your heart, because God is clearly with you. And then Nathan went away, and he had a bit of a pray, and God tugged his ear a bit, and said, no, you go back to David, and you tell him something slightly different. You tell him this. 
You tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. God said in effect, I don't need you to make a name for me by building me a great temple. I'm the one who got you where you are. I called you. I appointed you. I set out with you against your enemies. No, you don't have to make a name for me. But I'll make a name for you. Now when you think that this is possibly 3,000 years ago, what's written here, and I'm talking about David to you, in a country he had never heard of, And he is as famous as Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth II and Napoleon and you name them. God has given him a name. What an amazing, amazing God. But more than that, God said that he, his sons after him would sit upon the throne So God changed the nature of kingship to be an inherited kingship and said that from now on, God would give him a kingdom that had no end. Okay? Except, it came with this proviso, so long as the sons and the sons of sons and sons of sons obeyed God, all would be well. If they disobeyed God, then he would discipline them. And after 400 years, there no longer was a Davidic king on the throne of Israel. So what happened to God's promise, eh? Did he forget it? Couldn't he hack it? Did somehow... The governments of men fouled it up so he couldn't complete it until we come to the birth of Jesus. And we have these genealogies. Jesus of the line of David, humanly speaking. Jesus called to be the Messiah, born of a virgin birth with prophecies at his birth about the nature of his life. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The promises of David will be fulfilled for us now. So Jesus, fulfilment of the promises made to David, is born of David's line for a kingdom that has no end. Now the people of Jesus' day, as you know, were being oppressed by Rome. They longed 
for a warrior king. They hoped that the Messiah would be a kind of warrior king, somebody who could kick the Latins into touch. But Jesus doesn't appear to be a warrior king. Even though another of those Psalms declares him to be. Psalm 72. Let me f- Here we are. It's the wrong Psalm. But one of the Psalms says, Gird your sword on, mighty hero. Go out and ride against the king's enemies. Someone might find it for me and shout it out which one it is. A messianic Psalm speaks about Jesus or the Messiah as a great warrior. Thank you. Would you like to read it to us from where you are? Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendour and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you what it means. Thank you. Righteousness and truth. This is what it stands for. But there's a warrior king. So what about Jesus? Well, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So now we have to think, are we just thinking of a human king in the way that the Jews of the first century did? Or are we remembering that God is spirit and in him we live and move and have our being? And that the very origins of the universe, the material universe even, that we live in, the very origins are because of the spiritual work of God, the creative work of God who is spirit. And his kingdom, he said, is not of this world. His kingdom is the kingdom of God. But in this world... The kingdom of God has been spoiled and ruined because another prince has taken charge of all the earth. We read about this right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve attempted to eat of the fruit of the tree that God told them not to because in the day that you eat it you will surely die. And the devil tempted them and they listened and... They were expelled from the garden. Sin entered the world. They were distanced from God. And from then on, this Satan, as we know him, has been the prince of this world. Isaiah put it like this. It's in an oracle, which is about Babylon... But this passage is generally understood also to be of Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High King. That's what I aspire to in my rebellion. Now, in his rebellion, he subdued and subjugated the whole of mankind and brought us into his terrible spiritual darkness and sin, the evidence of which we see all around us through the ages. And Jesus did come to be king, and he is a warrior king, but he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil to set mankind free. So they shouldn't be blinded anymore and unable to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But they should be released to see the glory of God in the face of Christ through the good news of Jesus. And we're told in Hebrews, chapter 2, that it was necessary that he became human to do this. You might say, well, king of heaven, king, king of the kingdom of God, surely God being God, he could have just done it with a, a stroke of lightning of some kind and defeated Satan just like that. But remember, Satan has mankind under his thrall. An imposter king. And Hebrews says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ came, King and Saviour, the destroyer of the works of the devil and the liberator of his captives. And he needed humanity to do it. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And John says, we beheld his glory, glorious as the only begotten of the Father, the glory of the King of heaven, in effect. Towards men, Jesus, in his kingship, shows himself incredibly merciful. Let me see that again. And use both hands. There we are.
are a number of what we call servant songs in uh, Isaiah. I expect you're familiar with them, are you? Right, some of you are. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52 into 53. We read these characteristics of the Messiah, the King, and we're astonished by his gentleness. For instance, 42. A bruised reed he won't break. Smouldering wick he won't snuff out. He won't shout or cry or raise his voice in the streets. He will bring justice to the nations. There is a gracious and a generous Messiah, isn't there? A gracious and a generous king. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. This is Isaiah 49. In the shadow of his hand he's hit me. What was his weapon? His weapon was the word. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. That's probably why Paul calls the word of God a two-edged sword. His weapon was the word of salvation and of grace and of mercy and forgiveness. He upheld all the law of God. He didn't take one jot or tittle away from it. But when he found sinners like you and me, even some of them at the time, who were actually caught in the very acts of sin that we would turn our nose up, he showed mercy and grace. Isaiah 50 his attitude towards men, we find him not being rebellious, not drawing back, even offering his back to those who beat him and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Not playing back violence with violence, but loving his enemies as he told us to. Going second miles. Submitting himself to God rather than taking vengeance. This is how he acted towards men in his kingship. This is his nature. And then we come to Isaiah 52, the end of 52 and 53, and we have got the most magnificent, in my view, chapter in the whole Bible about the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, 
he was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has taken up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we deemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. Now what a character is this king of heaven towards men. But towards Satan who brought us under his dominion in the first place. Genesis tells us, Satan, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This is the saviour, warrior, king, whose kingdom is not of this world, but... He defeated Satan on the cross because Satan brought death into the world and death had to be defeated by the righteous one. And how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? And that's what Christ did in crushing Satan to liberate you and me He, God, has rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son, the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins because of what he did for us. Now we're talking about Christ the King and began with him exalted and the highest place in heaven. In John chapter 12, shortly before his arrest, Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, would draw all men unto me. He said, and he prayed, Father, glorify thou me with the glory I had with thee before the world began. Now if you read John chapter 12, go away and read it for yourself and just ponder it. You realise that he's saying glorify me at the very point where he is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and crucified so that We're perfectly at liberty to say, I, when I am lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up. John mentions him wanting to enter into his glory. And then Jesus speaks about his death. Now then, some years later, On the Isle of Patmos, John had another revelation. 
I saw a lamb, he was in a vision, many years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song about a scroll, the unfolding of the purposes of God. Who can unfold this scroll of the purposes of God? You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Not just a king of Israel a king of the nations, the high king of heaven. And what does John see in the middle of the throne? One like a lamb that had been slaughtered. That's how Jesus entered into his glory. Through the cross, into the Father's will who raised him from the dead and set him on Zion, his holy hill, where he now is. But this is our king. This is our king. How then do we respond to him? Back to Psalm 2, and then I'll finish. Hooray! That was me saying that because I'm tired. Kings, be wise. Be warned rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. He is your king. And through him God has ransomed you from the province of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his dear son. You're not citizens of the kingdom of earth primarily anymore. Though you are members of your community, we'd never not want you to be. But you are citizens of the kingdom of God. And our king has a set, a way of working which is not this kingdom's way of doing things. Serve your king. Serve your king. Not their king. For their purposes. Whoever they are. I keep looking at you, Peter, I apologise, but uh, you're just a focal point. I'm not getting at you. (laughs) 
You probably do it yourself when you preach, do you? You fix a point and then you can't tear your eyes away from them and then they think, oh, he's getting at me. Serve the Lord with fear. Reverend fear, that is. Because of who he is, your king. And rejoice with trembling. He has brought you into his kingdom, but with trembling rejoice, because think what grace has brought you here. Think what sacrifice made it possible. Think what extraordinary, I can't explain it, love is not a big enough word. Compassion's not a proper word. Such energy of a passion for your salvation which caused God through his son to go to such extreme lengths to bring you out of darkness and into his kingdom. Yes, rejoice, but rejoice with trembling because this is the most awesome salvation anyone can imagine. No other religion on the face of the earth can even think about it. Yes, rejoice, but with trembling. My God, thank you. Thank you. Kiss the Son, this says. Stand up, brother. <laughs> I'm not going to. Well, we would do it on either cheek, wouldn't we? We were in our earlier. But that's not what this is meant. I think this is meant. Kiss the Son. As one would royalty. But that means submission, doesn't it? And humbling. And it's nothing if it is not sincere. Kiss the Son. And in John 12, where Jesus said, Glorify thou me with the glory I had with you before the world began. He goes on to say that the Father will bless all those who obey him, Jesus. Obey him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what about all these other kings? at whom the Lord laughs for their folly, imagining that their majesty and their rules can somehow offset and overrule God. Well, Jesus, the King, will be the judge of all the earth. He will judge with equity. The days are coming and maybe, well there's definitely nearer than they were, but maybe very near, looking at the world around us. When the sun again will appear in the heavens with his holy angels and he'll come and receive up his worldwide church who have been ransomed from darkness and brought into his kingdom and will set up however it happens We've all got our different idea from the scriptures how it might happen. But that he will judge the earth with equity and the nations with justice.
and many of the people that we read about in our newspapers will fall to their knees and cry to the mountains to fall upon them when they see his coming because his coming is too late but the good news says it's not too late now it's not too late for them and it's not too late for you because blessed are all who say I will take refuge in him whatever dark stuff has hobbled your life Christ has defeated Satan and can set you free whatever dark sins you would never in a million years dare to confess to me or to Mackie that you have committed Christ died for your sin for your transgressions you can be forgiven and know it that's the point know it through his spirit's presence however lonely in life you have become for whatever circumstance the king welcomes you come to me he said all you who labour and are heavy laden and perhaps he did add who haven't got any other friends yet come to me I will give you rest and the king is on his throne to Satan he is a crusher to set you free to you he is gentle and generous and merciful and kind and won't break even the bruised reed.